We're talking about uh, words today, last words. Speaking of words, just to get you on your toes here, um, those of you who are lexophiles, we have some lexophiles here, people who love, pardon? Word nerds. Good definition of lexophiles. Word nerds. Here's some play on words. See if you can end these little statements. You can tune a piano, but you can't tune a... Wow, you guys are just way beyond. I don't, I don't know if I should even give you another one. Do you want another one? You don't want another one, do you? You do? Okay. To write with a broken pencil is... <laughs> I changed my iPod's name to Titanic. It's sinking. Good, Robin. England has no kidney bank, but it does have a... No. England has no kidney bank, but it does have a... Liverpool. Got ya! Oh, oh, one more. Haunted French pancakes give me the crepes. <laughs> that's it, that's all. Yeah, last words. We're going to look at the last words today. Last words. Uh, but before we get there, the last words, I want to read from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53. Isaiah 53, I'm going to start with verse... If you've never heard this before, um, listen close. Listen close. This is an amazing passage of Scripture. In my mind, the most amazing passage in the Old Testament because it was written 750 or so years before the event that it so perfectly describes. It's describing the crucifixion of Christ. Isaiah was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this seven centuries before it ever took place. See if you don't think these words describe what happened on the cross. He, that is a, a pronoun for the servant. This is called the suffering servant portion of the, of the prophet Isaiah. He was despised and rejected. A man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. And yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. For all of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. And yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants and his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. 
He had done no wrong and never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He's talking about you and me. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. What is the good plan that's going to prosper in his hands? Why, it's the plan of salvation. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many people to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. And I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for sinners. Isaiah chapter 53. Now as for the fulfillment of that passage, I'm turning to the gospel according to St. Luke in chapter 23, and I'm beginning with verse 1. This passage of Scripture takes place after the upper room experience. We just spent the last six or seven weeks looking at John 14, where Jesus is teaching in the upper room. And he left the upper room and went to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he agonized in prayer for a long time until Judas showed up with the Roman soldiers who arrested him. They arrested him. And they took him to the high priests and the religious leaders who began to try him and slap him around and interrogate him. And we're picking up from there. Then the entire council, that's the religious council, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It was made up of 70 people. It was like the Jewish Supreme Court. The entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming he is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, it is as you say. And Pilate turned to the leading priests and to the crowd and said, I find nothing wrong with this man. And they became insistent. But he is causing riots by his teaching where he goes, all over Judea and from Galilee to Jerusalem. Oh, is he a Galilean? Pilate asked. When they said that he was, Pilate set him to Herod Antipas, because Galilee was under Herod's jurisdiction, and Herod happened to be in Jerusalem at the time, parentheses, to celebrate Passover. <laughs> Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law stood there shouting their accusations. And then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. 
Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, became friends from that day on. Then Pilate called together the leading priests and other religious leaders along with the people, and he announced his verdict. You brought this man to me, accusing him of leading a revolt. I have examined him thoroughly on this point in your very presence and find him innocent. Herod came to the same conclusion and sent him back to us. Nothing this man has done calls for the death penalty, so I will have him flogged and then I will release him. Then a mighty roar rose from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, Kill him and release Barabbas to us. Now Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. Pilate argued with them because he wanted to release Jesus, but they kept shouting over and over again, Crucify him, crucify him. For the third time, Pilate demanded, Why? What crime has he committed? I found no reason to sentence him to death. So I will have him flogged, and then I will release him. But the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. And as they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for murder. But he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. As they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. But Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they will say, Fortunate indeed are the women who are childless, the wombs that have not borne a child and the breasts that have never nursed. And people will beg the mountains, fall on us and plead with the hills, bury us. All Bible scholars agree that Jesus is talking about what's going to happen 40 years after this, when the city of Jerusalem is torn down stone by stone and burned to the ground, and all the inhabitants are killed or taken into captivity. So Jesus is kind of giving them a warning about that. And then he says, For if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? And what he's saying there basically is, if you think things are bad now, wait until 40 years from now. Two other criminals were led out to be executed with him, and when they came to a place called the Skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. And the crowds watched, and the leaders scoffed. He saved himself, I'm sorry, he saved others, they said, let him save himself if he really is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And the soldiers mocked him too by offering him a drink of sour wine. And they called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And a sign was fastened above him with these words, this is the king of the Jews. I'm going to stop there 
And we will pray. Our Heavenly Father, I pray that these words that were written down by Luke will inform us as to your will for our lives in Christ Jesus our Lord. For we pray in his name. Amen. We're talking about last words today. The last words of someone are often of great significance. Sometimes they're actually uh, humorous. Here's a couple of humorous last words. He's so tame you could put your head right inside his mouth. Clip the red wire first. They only attack when they're hungry. <laughs> last words. Others are more profound in nature. Martin Luther said this, is his last words, God is our goal from whom comes salvation. Wesley said, the best of all, God is with us. Farewell, my friends. Dwight Moody said, this is my triumph. This is my coronation day, and it is glorious. And Moody died. Or consider the last words of Jesus as he hung upon the cross. He didn't say just one statement. If you read the Gospels carefully, you will find that there are seven statements attributed to Jesus that he spoke across the six hours in which he hung upon the cross. Seven statements. This is the first Sunday in Lent. And the rest of the Sundays in Lent leading up to Easter Sunday, I would like to examine these seven statements one by one. Today, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Next week, Jim has taken the second one. Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Spoken to John. After that, uh, I'm going to be talking about what Jesus meant when he said, I thirst. The week after that, it's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? After that, we're going to examine the phrase where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, today you shall be with me in paradise. On Palm Sunday, we will try to ascertain exactly what Jesus meant when he said, It is finished. And on Easter Sunday morning, for sure, you and I will take great comfort as we look at the very last words that Jesus spoke, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Seven sayings of the Lord Jesus that the church down through the centuries have been hanging upon with bated breath. Seven wonderful statements of the Lord. They open up a window into the heart the very heart and nature of who God is. Seven statements. Today, Father, forgive them. We dare not examine the phrase, Father, forgive them, without uh, reminding ourselves of the context of what's going on. I need not speak very much about crucifixion. Probably most of you have seen a movie, you know, before the advent of movies, throughout most of the centuries of, of the Christian church, most people had no idea what a crucifixion was. Um, they read about it. They could glean something from it. Uh, but, but no one, uh, until television was invented, really understood how horrific a crucifixion was. They were meant to inflict serious pain. How many of you have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? 
If you've seen the movie, The Passion of Christ, I don't need to say anything else. If you haven't seen the movie, and if you're brave enough, because it's tough to watch. It's tough to watch, but I encourage every Christian to watch it, because then you will understand what Jesus went through for you and I. It was a terrible form of punishment devised by the Romans. People in the towns and villages where it took place were uh, forced to come out by the Roman soldiers to watch it as a warning. You better not mess up or this is going to happen to you. So crowds would go to watch this horrific putting to death of someone. Crucifixion. But I want to pause for a moment to say that not only did Jesus endure physical pain, terrible physical pain, I want you to think about the emotional pain that Jesus endured while He hung upon the cross. The emotional pain that was inflicted upon Him. Uh, the people said to Him, Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. The soldiers said, uh, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The religious leader said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he really is God's chosen one. And we're talking uh, about uh, the seven statements that Jesus made throughout this series of messages. But it would behoove us to stop and think about the last words that Jesus heard. Hateful. Irreverent bitter words as Jesus hangs upon the cross. And I ask myself, wasn't it enough that they flogged Him? Wasn't it enough that they crucified Him? Peter says in his letter that they not only yelled these words, he says they didn't scream these words. Peter chooses who was standing there, said they hurled they hurled their irreverent words towards Jesus. They wanted to inflict emotional pain upon Him. Make no mistake about it. They had broken His body, and now they are trying to break His spirit. And in the midst of all that, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus said many wonderful things throughout His lifetime, but I don't think there's any more remarkable words that Jesus ever spoke than when He said that little phrase right there in the midst of that setting, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As I studied that passage this week, Four things popped out at me rather quickly that I'd like to pass on to you before we pause and delve into the meat of this saying. The first thing that I noted I thought was worth passing on to you is that this is a prayer that Jesus is making. Out of the seven statements on the cross, he prays three times. This is a prayer, along with, uh, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. This third one, Father, forgive them, it's a prayer. I just wanted to point that out, that it's a prayer. It's a prayer. And we can learn from it. Maybe you came in here today, you just need to be reminded, when the chips are down, pray. Pray. Secondly, secondly, 
we see Jesus practicing what he preaches. In the Sermon on the Mount, as recorded by Matthew in chapter 5, Jesus said, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you might be sons and daughters of your Father who lives in heaven. And Jesus here is practicing what he preaches as he prays for them. Third, this prayer is a fulfillment of prophecy. We heard a little while ago the amazing prophecy from Isaiah, the prophet. Did you catch the very last line in the whole prophecy? The very last line said, and he interceded, that is, he prayed for sinners. And so this little scene that we see here is a fulfillment of prophecy. But of the four things I wanted to mention, this last one I think is most important and most interesting to me. And that is that Jesus probably didn't say this saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do once. Because of those of you who are English majors or remembers anything about English, this is the imperfect tense in English, which always implies continuous past action. Continuous past action. And so in the Greek it reads, he was continuing to say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was continuing to say, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. How many times? We don't know for sure. Certainly several times. Maybe when they were nailing the nails into his hands and feet, he was saying, Father, forgive them. Maybe as the cross was raised up and shocked into the socket that was in the hole in the ground there, and Jesus came down on the cross Maybe he was saying, Father, forgive them there. Maybe as they gambled for his clothing. Maybe it was as they were hurling these insults. Jesus was continuing to say, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. He was continuing to say. He was continuing to say. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? I don't think if I was crucified, I could say anything like that. Why, for much lesser offenses, I'm ready to defend myself and fight back. And here's Jesus, who's teaching us by way of example that we are to forgive other people the way that God in Christ has forgiven us. That's part of the teaching here that we dare not bypass. Probably not the main teaching here, and I'm going to close with that very shortly. But we dare not bypass the idea that Jesus is modeling for us what he told us many times. We are to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven us. Peter talks about Jesus on the cross, and he says um, when they hurled their insults at him, Jesus did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats back. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. If anybody had a right to fight back, to retaliate, to exact revenge, it was Jesus. But he did not. And that's what we are to learn too. Um, There's a lady, what is her name? Where did I write that down? Anne Lamont. Forgiveness of others means it finally becomes unimportant that you hit them back. Forgiveness of others means it's finally become unimportant 
that you hit them back. I saw an interesting survey the other day by um, the Journal of Adult Development. 75% of all people, doesn't matter if they're Christians or non-Christians, 75% of all people who were surveyed in America said they believe they've been forgiven of their sins. But of those same people, only 50% say they have forgiven others. There's a little bit of a lack there. There's a little bit of a lack there. It's hard, but we need to forgive others. I have a story to share with you about forgiveness and forgiving others. I hope this story will inspire you. It's about a young man named Bruce Goodrich. Bruce Goodrich had applied and was accepted to go to school at Texas A&M University. And when he got on campus, decided to become part of the cadet corps and was going through, I don't know if they call it hazing for the cadet corps. Um, what do they call that when they're initiation or whatever? One of the things they did at Texas A&M to get for the cadet corps initiation was they caused them or they had them to run until they couldn't run anymore and they would drop to the ground. That's part of the used to be part of the initiation at Texas A&M because Bruce Goodrich ran till he couldn't run anymore and he dropped from the ground and he never got up. He never got up. And after about five days, there was a funeral there at the university. And about five days after that, his father wrote this letter to the Texas A&M University. I would like to th take this opportunity to express the appreciation of my family for the great outpouring of concern and sympathy for Texas A&M over the loss of our son. We were deeply touched by the tribute paid to him in the battalion. We were particularly pleased to note that his Christian witness did not go unnoticed during his brief time on campus. I hope it will be some comfort to know that we harbor no ill will in the matter. We know our God makes no mistakes. Bruce had an appointment with his Lord and is now secure in his celestial home. When the question is asked, why did this happen? Perhaps one answer will be, so that many will consider where they will spend eternity. I oftentimes find myself thinking about those who made the decision to make Bruce run until he dropped. I know that they have lost sleep. They have cried. And they will probably spend a part of every day for the rest of their lives thinking about the consequences of their actions. They are human beings just like I am. And just like I make mistakes, they made a mistake. I will never forget that God in Christ has extended His great compassion towards me, though I did not deserve it. I have made many mistakes that have offended God, but He had so much compassion for me that He has sent His Son to receive the consequences of my actions. If God can forgive me for my actions, I cannot help but forgive those men of theirs. Forgiveness of others means it finally becomes unimportant that you hit back. Forgiveness. Father, forgive them. Who is the them? Who is the them? It's us. It's us. Thank you. 
It's easy to blame that he's talking about Pilate or the soldiers or the religious leaders or the people who shouted, free Barabbas, crucify Jesus. It's easy to see that maybe Jesus was saying, forgive them. And I'm sure that his prayer did include all those who were immediately responsible for his crucifixion. But you and I know that this prayer extends far beyond a place called the skull on a Friday afternoon in Jerusalem. This prayer extends down through the centuries and was offered for people like you and I, you and I. And all of us are in the same boat. When Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing, he's talking about the forgiveness that we need as a result of being a human being who is selfish by nature, which basically is sin. And we need to be forgiven of our sin. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. It means being separated from God forever. That's what death is. I don't know if hell is a place where there's fire and brimstone. All I know is that hell is a place where God is not going to be. God is not going to be there. There's going to be an eternal separation because of sin unless something is done about that. And sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking, oh, I'm going to do something about that. I'll start going to church every Sunday. I'll start going to church and God surely will see me going to church. Oh, what a good little boy, what a good little girl. When the time comes, I'll let them go to heaven because they went to church. No, 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 no. We cannot pay our own debt. The New Testament is very clear. A debt has to be paid, that's for sure. The debt for our sinfulness must be paid. That's what Jesus did when he offered himself up on the cross. He paid the debt for our sin. So we have a choice to make about this. Are we going to choose to try to pay our own debt through our own endeavors? Or are we going to allow Jesus to pay the debt for us? Without Christ, people are sitting on death row, never knowing when the hammer is going to drop. But Jesus wants to give us a pardon. A pardon. Alexander III was Tsar of Russia from 1881 to 1894. He was a cruel person who specifically persecuted Jewish people and sent them to Siberia often. He made out a written statement sending a person to Siberia, and it said this on it. Pardon impossible to be sent to Siberia. Now, his wife, Maria, was a compassionate soul, and she saw that written out on a piece of paper, and one night after her husband went to bed, and before that piece of paper was delivered to the soldiers who were supposed to do that, she changed the comma to say, pardon, impossible to be sent to Siberia. Jesus has done the same thing for you and me. Pardon? Impossible to be sent to hell. Without Christ, that's what hangs over our heads. Pardon impossible to be sent to hell. With Christ, it's pardon impossible to be sent to hell. Can there be a clearer choice than has ever been put before you before than to accept the pardon that Jesus so graciously offers you and me? It's a pretty clear choice. All of us can be forgiven of our sin. Some of you are thinking right now, but you don't know what sin I committed, Pastor. I don't think God could forgive me. 
God can forgive any sin, any sin. All of us can be forgiven of our sins, no matter who we are or what we've done. I'll close with a story uh, about a priest. A Catholic priest was um, working one stormy Saturday night on his sermon for the next Sunday morning, homily, they call it in the Catholic Church. And uh, it was an extremely stormy night, and he got a telephone call from a hospital that was located 30 miles away to say that we have somebody in the hospital here, they're not doing very well at all, and they've requested last rites. Can you come to the hospital and give this man last rites? So the priest gets in his automobile and begins to drive through the wind and the rain and the lightning and the thunder and the storm. It takes him an hour and 20 minutes to go 30 miles. He gets to the hospital. He's introduced to the man who's dying, who wants last rites. They start up a conversation, and as part of the last rites, you as a person have to be willing to confess your sin, and this man was unwilling to confess. And he just, the priest could tell that there's something going on here that he's done that's horrific, and he just can't confess it. And finally, throughout the conversations, the other man who's lying in the bed getting ready to die says this. I used to work on the railroad. We were working on a night such as this, a stormy, rainy night. We were working in the yard, switching cars. We had all been drinking. It was my job to make sure that a switch was lined so a freight train that was coming into the yard would go down the main track rather than to go into the yard. He said, I lined the switch wrong, and when that train came into town, it went down into the yard, and the first two engines and the first ten cars derailed, and there was a crossing sitting there, and the engine fell over right upon a car, and it killed a mother and a father and two of their girls. And he says, do you think that God could forgive me of that sin, being responsible for that. Well, the priest didn't say anything for about 10 minutes. Finally, he said, I guess if I can forgive you for that sin, that God could. Because that mother and father and those two girls was my mother and my father and my two older sisters. And I forgive you of that. And if I can forgive you of that, then God can forgive you of that sin. And that man on his dying day received the forgiveness of his sins. Prompted by the forgiveness he just received from that man. I'm so grateful that God is a God who forgives sins. And He can forgive us no matter who we are or what we've done. And I'm just here to say again, in fact, it's my privilege to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and to tell you that you can be forgiven. And if you have not been yet, then you need to be forgiven today. And you can be. All you need to do is open up your heart and to receive the forgiveness of your sin and the promise of eternal life in Christ. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, as we begin to come to these words of Jesus uttered from the cross, I pray that their power and their import will wash over us. And may that happen today as we consider forgiveness. 
that you have forgiven us and that we are called upon, therefore, to forgive others. So whichever way that goes, depending upon who we are and what our condition is right now, if we've never been forgiven, of course, we want to start with that. And help us to see, Lord, that we do wrong in this life and that that sin separates us from you. And help us to make a courageous decision to admit to you who we are and to accept what you've offered. And once we have, then help us, Lord, to be like you and to forgive others the way you've forgiven us. And so as we come to this table of communion, let these thoughts permeate our souls Fill our minds so that we can become more like Jesus, for we pray it in his name. Amen.